Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. And tonight we have Gwen Katz. And last week there was a bit of a, a Twitter storm set off by one of Gwen's tweets about a male sort of failing rather epically at writing from a female point of view, you know, about herself and and how she views the world, how she views herself. And uh, it it spawned a a bit of a challenge, which writers everywhere embraced, which was describe yourself as a male author would. And this just seemed so on point for our podcast that we thought we had to, to get her on. So before we start talking about this uh, epic viral uh, conversation. Gwen, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, Sure. I'm Gwen Katz, and I'm the author of Among the Red Stars, which is a YA book about girls who flew airplanes during World War II. You have these these wonderful tweets where you were um, you gave these examples of of men who were claiming that they they write you know wonderful women. They they really weren't very good um, to put it to put it nicely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like where where did this come from? Like why did you decide to sort of speak out about this and and bring this up? Well, you know when you put something on Twitter, you're never thinking at the moment. You know <laughs> I want thirty thousand people to see this, right? It was all just. Um, I was reading this forum thread where this man very arrogantly announced that he was proof that men could write female characters. And I saw that and I was immediately thinking like, what are the odds that this guy's book has a woman who talks about her boobs? And so I looked it up and sure enough, there they were right in, right in chapter one. And I think what really just stuck out at me was the arrogance because um, here's what he said. What he said was, my book is a first-person POV, and the MC is a woman. I'm definitely not a woman, but it works because I was able to pull it off. I reject someone saying I couldn't write a female MC because I'm male, and, well, I did it. It's called writing. Of course, what immediately comes to mind is uh, Sarah Haji's quote, God grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite. It just baffles me, really, when you see examples of this and when they so staunchly defend themselves. And mm-hmm. that that kind of whole thing where you do see it's always breasts, it's always thinking about our curves and we're walking into a room and, and stealing a glance at the mirror. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know this about myself. <laughs> it's always curves in all the right places. Yes, obviously, <laughs> yeah. It seems like the thought just never entered his mind that there was any possibility that he might not be as brilliant at writing women as he thinks he is. He's just utterly convinced of his own competence. Well, maybe a load of guys have, have emailed him and said, wow, that's fantastic. That's exactly how women think. Maybe the women who read it just go, yeah, it's probably not worth my time. <laughs> that seems very likely. Or alternately... I imagine it's quite possible he puts a lot more weight on the responses he gets from men. Ah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the the describe yourself as a man would um, sort of came from your initial comments, but you, you didn't start that. I mean, how, how did you feel about that when it, it sort of all launched off your comments? 
Oh, I thought it was hilarious. And some of the things people came up with. Um, my favorite was the picture that's just the pair of eyes and then a pair of boobs underneath them. <laughs> yes, I loved that one. <laughs> that is like the entirety of, of our bodies. <laughs> I don't need anything else. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And maybe twist it around so that they can show the ass as well at the same time, oh, right? of course. Yeah, you're right. Contorted in that corkscrew uh, pose. I mean, in the spirit of, uh, you know, women writing fantasy and science fiction horror, um, I wanted to read out just Samantha Shannon, who we've had on the show before. One of hers was, uh, was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so she responded to it saying, She slid her legs into skin-tight jeans the better to flaunt their leg-like shape and strode down a <laughs> corridor, walking on her legs, which were long. Wow, she thought, my legs are so long. Her breasts <laughs> jounced in the, their agreement. I thought, <laughs> which I thought jounced, was great. Yes. Which I've never seen used elsewhere. <laughs> Ever. That really is fantastic. I kind of feel like uh, in Blackadder, where... Uh, Melch, it turns to uh, to his to his um, uh, lieutenant and says, "Oh, make a note of that. I'd like to use it more in conversation. I think I'm going to, to keep Jounce to one side and save it up for a, a really good moment where I can just I can just drop it in perfectly. I think it's a, a good word." Alongside member, <laughs> <laughs> I another bet good word. I, could, <laughs> I bet I could find a situation where I put both those in the same sentence. <laughs> I, sh- I shall tweet it if I do. <laughs> You need to get a friend in on this who can go around knocking things, knocking into things to jounce them for you so you can describe that. (laughs) There we go. Megan, that's your job at the next convention. (laughs) (laughs) My lack of coordination would probably just do that on its own, to be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, that description is so funny, but then you just immediately think of all the sci-fi books you've read where the female character comes in and is essentially that mm-hmm. or all the art, all the comic book characters yes. and, and all the like pulp sci-fi covers and such. Yep. Or um, the, the viral video that was doing the rounds uh, in the last few weeks with the movie film posters. I don't know if any of you saw that where it's, it's all these really popular movies and there's men in, on like their faces and then there's always like a, a woman usually from behind and there's just legs oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> i saw that well uh infinity war was getting some praise for their character posters going up and uh, shuri and i forget who the other uh, character was were from the front looking very powerful and then there's captain america and the winter soldier and both of them it's butt shots on both of their character posters. I like that. Yes. Give us more male butt. Uh, I feel like they know their audience at this point. They know what um, <laughs> Infinity War fans are going into this movie hoping for. And it's a lot of Chris Evans' butt. So what I loved about this this whole thing, you know, your comments originally and, you know, describe yourself as a man would is, you know, it comes down to how do we write good descriptions and what is a good description right of a character so that's where i i wanted to take our conversations because i thought that was a really interesting point because mm-hmm. as a writer myself i actually tend to be really uh 
absent <laughs> with my descriptions of people. Uh, it just never never really comes up and people always tell me you know this is one of those things that i need to work on because i don't know what they look like and to me i'm like well who cares but obviously it's important and i need to put that in there but i probably shy away from it because i find it difficult to do it in a way that is interesting and free of cliches and you know all these kinds of things so i think it's it's an interesting subject to tackle the f- the fact that we have these these problems of particularly when men are describing women and it comes up time and time again and we can go back to the classics of Dickens and Hemingway and this is terrible descriptions of women you know what does it say about us that we just can't seem to move past this the thing is, so many of these books are classics or they won awards you know all the um John Updike and everyone. And so we've still got a uh, sort of a critical environment that just doesn't see this as an important failing. It doesn't, even if they realize on some level that this is unrealistic or, you know, kind of sexist, don't see it as like a strike against the book in general Mm. or probably might just not notice it at all. (laughs) Which is worse, far worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of these passages you see from published books, from critically acclaimed books, you go, how could this get past anyone? How could this get past an editor? How could anyone on an award committee have read this book and not, you know, just peed their pants laughing when they got to this page? Yeah, I read an article about that uh, only the other day, and it was a, a deconstructing, um, you know, the, the kind of the literary white male greats and actually quoting selectively from their their books. And um, there was shocking. There were some shocking paragraphs in there, which are exactly the same. I, I thought same as you. You know, how on earth did this get past an editor? I mean, how is it? Does it get past the the kind of general reader? How does it get past a female? Because it was mostly, you know, men writing really pretentiously. And yet these books are considered, you know, huge, kind of they're giants, literary giants. Uh, and you're, you're thinking, well, you know, what planet are they on? Because it it's, does not resonate with with my own experience. And I don't think it resonates with any of the experiences of the woman I know. So I'm sorry, Lisa, do you not constantly think about your breasts? Oh, oh, I'm I mean, so sorry. I lied. I do. It's the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. Oh. It's what I think about when I wake up and immediately look in the mirror and, um, you know, think about my hair color and think about all those things, you know, as one does. Yes, of course. Right. It's it's how we all exist in life. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm always looking in the mirror and thinking about how strikingly blue my eyes are and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think men keep doing this because we keep rewarding them or at the very least never penalizing them. Right. Yeah. They don't really have any incentive to learn to write women realistically. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't think we consider it or some part of the literary 
community doesn't consider it a really big deal. Maybe the book is saying something incredibly clever about uh, the human condition, and uh, and and you know, okay, there's that awful passage in there about that the way the women it is, you know, the women are described, but it doesn't matter because you know maybe it, it's making a, a great point. And oh, okay, I can see why someone would make that argument because I'm sure. I mean, obviously, I'm a writer. I know there are crap moments in my books, and and you know, there's crap moments in every book. It's just that yeah, this is endemic, you know. It just keeps happening again and again, and 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 men are the the culprits almost a hundred percent of the time. I don't know how well um, you all know Joanna Russ, who is a wonderful, oh, yeah, wonderful science fiction writer. She wrote the Female Man. Um, yeah, she's fantastic, and she's written um, so how to suppress women's writing, and she's also um, uh, how to write like a woman. Um, some great essays on women writers and how they are dismissed and so on and as well as specifically writing women when it comes to science fiction and it's really interesting but there's um, in one of hers there's a passage where she's looking into sort of the what she calls the misogynistic daydreams of Hemingway (laughs) which I, I, I really enjoyed but then she she goes on to sort of look at Dickens and she says that I'm thinking especially of Dickens, Bella Wilfer in Our Mutual Friend, vain and pretty, who flirts quite reasonably with her father, then applies the same manner to her younger sister, which is not reasonable, and then alone flirts impossibly with her mirror. Because women speaking of mirrors and prettiness make it all too clear that even for pretty women, mirrors are the foci of anxious, not gratified narcissism. And it goes on. And, you know, again, I think it's just funny how we mentioned mirrors and women. And yes, again, Dickens is just writing there and that she she flirts with even a mirror because that's what we do. Well, that's a common response I got to this thread is I got lots of people saying if I were looking in a mirror, I'd be thinking about the things I was insecure about. You know, if I were thinking about my butt, I would be thinking oh, my butt's too big. I would be thinking about something that I felt was a flaw in my appearance. Yes, I, I'm i terrible. I never look at mirrors, personally. I hate them. <laughs> That's generally my policy as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? That It raises the, the question of the difference between... Um, you know, self-regard and, and, and what you see when you look at yourself. And, and you right. know, it's it, almost the whole thing about seeing flaws is almost a stereotype in itself. And yet you, I, it's very rare to see that from a male perspective. It's almost always from a, a female perspective because we all have that, you know, I think maybe it's society is to blame for this, for, you know, making us feel like we need to look, you know, the best as in airbrushed on the cover of some magazine. I feel like we're always comparing ourselves to some completely unattainable ideal. Um, and we're more as, as women are more likely to see flaws when we look in the mirror. Um, but it seems that there's a huge divide between this, you know, what, what we see and what, what men see or what men think that we see. Right. Well, and if you do, even if you do genuinely think you look amazing that day, we're socialized to not want to brag like that, right? You wouldn't walk around just going, telling everyone, oh, I look amazing today. We would think that that was just being, you know, self-centered and arrogant. When you break down the the sort of the description of a woman, whether or not it's someone 
uh, a male character or a male writer, you know, describing a woman as well as writing from a woman's you know, perspective, um, a first person, how she sees herself. Either way, it's always written from that male gaze point of view. Right. And, you know, it, it, it comes back to this, you know, where women sit, what we're allowed to be, which uh, Ursula Le Guin sort of, she wrote about a lot in some of her um, nonfiction is about how you, you get these kind of like what characters are allowed to be. And the, in science fiction, fantasy, horror, with genres that are so trope heavy that mm. those characters, the, the female characters are only allowed to be the archetypes. Well, yes, these are genres based on archetypes, but the men seem to be allowed to to break out, to transcend. Yeah. Yes, and it, but the women are just relegated to those archetypal pieces, and they don't get any any more kind of robust or depth into their character or whatsoever. There are no Mrs. Browns. Yes, <laughs> being attractive to men is such a central part of. All basically all the archetypes for women. Yeah, which is I I've also sort of thought about because we had uh, an episode quite a while back now where we talked about villainesses and we were saying how quite a few of the villains when you look at something like Snow White um, and the, you know the Evil Queen and you have even the the witches in Stardust, they're all very concerned with their looks and this is kind of seen as something really terrible and yet at the same time the good women good <laughs> that we get you know often again you know from the male perspective those women are still there focusing on how they look thinking of you know looking into mirrors flirting with mirrors um and, and so on so it, it, it's their kind hair of... done by bluebirds and so on <laughs> yes but it's it's very mixed messages there we have it's it's terrible to be so concerned about the way that you look and yet at the same time that is all that women are and all they are meant to do and if they leave that realm I, we have no place for them yeah it's supposed is that whole um not supposed to notice that you're attractive thing right you're supposed to your face is supposed to look perfect but you're not supposed to put on makeup because mm -hmm. Trying to cultivate an attractive appearance is somehow it's vain or even it's deceptive to some men, some men will say. I mean, do you think that women writers have internalized this? Are we almost as guilty as men at writing women in this way? Oh, I think we always internalize. And sometimes it's not internalized it as in we believe it but sometimes it's just writing to the genre and writing to the market and I think for a lot of women they are conscious that you'd never sell say a screenplay that specifically says my my leading character is you know a fat 45 year old woman who's a you know spaceship captain or whatever that it would be much easier to sell it if you say well she's you know, she's got the same personality, but she's 18 and blonde, you know. And of course, that's a trap because we're just reinforcing those ideas by um, telling those stories. But it's a trap that's very, very easy for women to fall into. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree on the internalization. I think it's a, it's impossible. I mean, growing up re- being surrounded by male authored fiction, it, it's just impossible not to have started to internalize these. And and it's not just um you know books and, and and movies. It's like society in general. Like it's 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 the billboards that you see with these women with perfect faces. It's it's just um you know in newspapers and magazines. It's on television. Uh, it's kind of everywhere, and we we're told to to look a certain way and to, to feel and act a certain way um, and I feel like this is not the same weight is not necessarily on men as it is on women particularly in the kind of the public arena mm-hmm. so I, I do think there's a huge element of internalization even though we'd like to fight against it I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that slips through oh yeah so how do we go about writing good descriptions of women and of men in our work how do we do that because i i get stumped by this oh it's such a complicated question um <laughs> I, the most important thing to start with is just to be sure that you're describing the character if they're the protagonist especially if it's a first person story from their own perspective right because this passage i quoted she's describing you know how a credit card would look in her back pocket yes well she can't see her back pocket This description only makes sense if you imagine that you're standing behind her looking at her butt. So you've got to be describing things, you know, as they would be seen by the actual character who's going to, who's both not physically looking at herself and also knows things like whether she's wearing makeup or, you know, the clothes she's wearing, where she got them and, you know, what she thinks of them, whether she put work into the outfit and stuff like that. You know, um, she's aware of this stuff. So she's not thinking of it just like she appeared like a, you know, magazine model. (laughs) Well, I tend to approach it by going, well, it depends on what my, um, what my character is obviously, because it might be completely different to me, but I look at it first and go, well, what would I notice if it was me standing in this fairy glade in the middle of a a secondary world's um fantasy world what would i notice about the fairy standing in front of me what would be the first thing i would notice and i kind of go from there and i always put that in as my first description and then later on when i go back and i've got more sense of the characters i will change it a little bit possibly because it might be that for example i might have written a really horrible male character who does fixate on boobs and that's the first thing he noticed that the sprite before him is naked or you might be writing from the point of view of a child. And whilst me as an adult, the first thing I might go is it's green. Um, the thing, first thing that a child might think is, oh, it's about the same size as me, because that's the assessment they would be making. So I think how you write another character or how you write the appearance of another character is dependent on your own character and how they are, how they view it. And I think, you know, that can tell a lot from you can tell a lot about the point of view character on what they notice about each other. But I mean, I'm absolutely with you there when you said that there's no point in describing yourself based on what other people can see, like the credit card in your back pocket. Um, although that does in its own way kind of, it it reminds me of those women in, was it whichever supermarket adverts that used to turn coyly to the camera and pat their back pocket because they just saved some money. Um, <laughs> if you are that kind of person. As to price. Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> not that we endorse or, you know, in any way. <laughs> but if you are that kind of woman and you've grown up with that kind of thing, then, yeah, I suppose you, the last thing you would do as you turn and walk out for a night out is look 
at yourself sort of askance and go, how does my does my bum look big in this effectively? Um, so again, that could that could tell you something about the character. I guess the point is when that kind of that character has, you know, isn't the kind of character that would examine themselves down to their butt before they walk out of the door, whether they're just like we said earlier, a character who is really insecure and kind of feels like maybe actually the role of fat is showing above their trousers rather than whether or not there's something slimline in their back pocket. Well, yeah, because another important aspect of descriptions is I think a good description of a character's physical appearance should also tell us something about their personality, right? That's another problem with these very bland descriptions of women is we just have no idea who this person is. All we know is that she's hot and blonde, you know, and has boobs. So I love a description that will tell you something about like, do they look like they're um, like they put a lot of work into their appearance? Do they look like they just rushed out the door? What's their expression like on their face? You know, um, what do they have any accessories or something that could tell us something about their personality? You know, for instance, if a character is wearing a crucifix, that's something you can tell it's about your personality or that kind of thing. I once obviously did a romance writing course and I read up a lot about it. And I came across one really interesting point in relation to heroines within romance. I know that's slightly outside of our genre of science fiction, fantasy and horror. But it did make the interesting point that people, or certainly women, read romances with the idea that they want to place themselves within that world and in that character. And there were quite a few people who said, actually, I do not describe my point of view character at all because I want the reader to imagine that it's them. So if you are reading it and you're, you know, a, a chubby blonde, you don't want to read about a slim brunette, for example, because you instantly disassociate with that character and go, oh, well, clearly they get the guy because of whatever, um, which I thought was a very interesting point. So sometimes having no description can help you slip in uh, actually within to the character and, and help you empathize with them a lot better. Well, I'm kind of of two minds of that. Um, that's a common attitude we see in YA as well, especially with covers. There are all these, um, there's a running joke about the uh, headless girls on YA covers where the cover, you know, just cuts off at the neck. <laughs> and the idea behind those is always, you know, you want to allow the reader to put herself in the point of view of the protagonist. Um, but one issue I have with that is, when they say that, you know, anyone could imagine themselves being the protagonist, it never means actually everyone does it, right? Um, because if we have this cover with the girl from the neck down, we can see lots of things about her, right? Yes. We can see that yeah. she's white. We can see that she's skinny. We can see that she, see that she doesn't have a outwardly visible disability, that kind of thing. So the concern is that we're making assumptions when we assume that not having a description makes the character universal. We may still be making assumptions about what universal means. And also it's rather condescending to the readers to suggest that they can't imagine themselves in that place, in the place of a character that has a few physical characteristics. You can still empathize with characters just even though they don't look exactly like you don't behave exactly like you would do that's the entire point of imagination yeah um i certainly feel like it it would seem odd to me as a reader to read a description be like oh she has green eyes well i don't identify with this character at all anymore 
but I am, I do appreciate the fact that, especially in a genre like romance, um, that is telling these very idealized stories that, um, oftentimes the descriptions will be of very idealized, uh, women and how, if you were someone who, you know, had a birthmark or was overweight or was something that society considers physically imperfect, you'd read these descriptions of all these beautiful, beautiful women and go, you know, traditionally beautiful women and go, well, none of these stories are about me. So I do see both sides of, um, of that idea. What are some of the the really kind of cliched descriptions that we should stay away from? So I remember, well, the one that always gets me is eyes because, and maybe this is a personal thing because I never look at someone and go, oh, what color eyes do they have? Or search it out. I have loads of friends. I wouldn't have a clue what their eye color is. I find it baffling. <laughs> My husband had to correct me one time when we were dating I was dating the guy and I had not noticed what color his eyes were. It's not something that, it's not important. Why, why would you notice that? And I, I don't know anyone who does really tend to notice that particularly. Well, you have to be gazing into someone's eyes to really get a good look, right? Um, just at a glance, it doesn't necessarily stand out. Well, I think from a body language point of view, if you um, look at... I can't bring to mind any any immediate sites I can direct you to, but I'm pretty sure I have seen that if you follow someone's eyes when you're talking to someone else and they've done it digitally so they can see, you sort of look at the the T T across the face, the two eyes, the nose and the mouth. So I think those features, because when you're talking to someone, that's what you're focusing on, um, is a is a key thing that you you would notice I mean maybe not necessarily the color I suppose you would more likely notice abnormalities they had a slightly large nose and it's the only thing you can stare at while they're talking to you or something like that when you look at someone's eyes I think you're mainly looking for their expression yes I would agree there well for me the standard cliche description is eye color hair color yes just that pair and no other features um, especially if and, it's golden locks that are shimmering or <laughs> something. Three female characters and there's a blonde, a blue brunette and a redhead. Yeah. No. And all we know is their eye color and their hair color. And I'm thinking like, these aren't people, these are Zwinkies. These are like, you know, it's, it's like somebody was just swapping out the hair in, you know, on, on an avatar in a video game. Yeah. But that's the thing. I I struggle when uh, trying to de- describe kind of normal looking characters. So you mm-hmm. know, I can always, as, as Charlotte was saying, you know, the the you notice the abnormal and the unusual, and but you don't want to just write every character as having something really bizarre. And also, it it shows just how judgmental and terrible I am as a person. But let's let's uh, skim over that for a little bit. But it is easier to sort of find the the differentiator and unfortunately the differentiator is usually something that would be perceived generally negatively so if you just have a character who's just like a super normal ordinary looking person i mean how do you describe them in a way that's interesting and i suppose we could link this back to what you were saying before how 
the physical description has to be tied to the personality. Right, because presumably the character, even if they look very average, presumably if they're a character in your story, they're not just a completely personalityless as well. Presumably they have things that are interesting about them as a person. You'd hope, yes. <laughs> they're maybe they're fidgeting or maybe they're um you know, maybe they squint a lot or are constantly, you know, you know, they have something about their the way they behave that um could be a distinguishing feature. I would say that there are two approaches to this. One would be that of Homer, um, Greek uh, writer, although is Stephen King to, you know, be quite dramatically different. But I remember when I studied Homer, reading um, an academic question of why are all the Homer is an amazing poet. Why has he got all these stock phrases in? And the idea behind it was that he had all these stock phrases because the it relaxed the reader. Oh, sorry, at the time it was oral, so they relaxed the listener. And meant that they weren't kind of imagining all the time. So I think there is an element, if you've got someone who is is standard, in a weird way, just giving a very generic description will help the reader to kind of understand and kind of, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be distinguished all the time. Um, sometimes you do just have a ready-made stereotype in your mind. If you've read an awful lot um, and you're a big reader or particularly a big reader within a particular genre, you might already know some of the tropes and you might not want to imagine a single guard who's going to be there for three lines and a huge amount of detail you might just pick up you know on a few bits like the the body size or shape and you know their hair color and how they wear it or something like that so it might be a case of sometimes just generic ordinary descriptions are going to be not only acceptable but welcome because it gives your reader a bit of a break from all of these really intense descriptions about personality or eyes or whatever it is i think the other one that i always liked was stephen king i always thought he was excellent at introducing even the most minor characters because he would link their features to a story in their their past and i mean you've seen the side of stephen king books he's he always has plenty of words to play with um but he even the most minor characters would have this kind of little introduction-y thing with a little story about them and made them not only helped you to visualize them what they look like but also their personality and mm -hmm. I found that worked really really well but again it does then leave you with books the size of Stephen King's where you describe each character in this you know kind of little colloquial detail. But I mean that that is why tropes sort of exist I guess it's it's the the shorthand you know the archetypes um and actually, it's it's brought me back to something that I did want to to bring up on this. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Tough Guide to Fantasyland by Diana Wynne Jones. It's mm -hmm. fantastic. I love it. Um, but she actually in in here is a, an entry on color coding. It says color coding is very important in Fantasyland. Always pay close attention to the color of the clothing, hair, and eyes of anyone you meet. It will mm -hmm. tell you a great deal. Complexion is also important. In many cases, is it is coded too. And yeah, she goes on to sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of describe hair. Black hair is evil, particularly if combined with a corpse-white complexion. You know, <laughs> red hair always entails magical powers, even if these are latent. Brown hair, you know, and it goes on and it does the same with eyes. And, and But she makes a good point because when you're going outside of the just, you know, obviously he's given the three women different hair colour to make them easy to differentiate and to actually coding in all these things, you know, oh, well, the 
the beautiful the blonde is is probably going to be the ditzy one and you know and so on and so forth um all these things are coded and they are shorthand and so part of the problem is not just a cliche of you know that might be negative or a bit misogynist but it's also kind of just easy well yeah an archetype is not necessarily a cliche right um if you have your villain sleeping in in a black cloak, that's not inherently wrong to have your villain dress in black because that's villainous. That's, that is, as you say, it's just a shorthand. It lets the reader know where the story's going. And mm. sometimes they want to subvert those, but there is nothing wrong with just using them. But I think historically there have been a lot of associations with colour. So you were talking there about the villain wearing black. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand from my, my brush with historical reenactment is that black is a really hard colour to get right. It, it generally comes out as grey. So to be able to have genuine black, you've got to be really, really rich and very powerful to be able to get this colour, which is why I think traditionally a lot of guys were in black. And mm-hmm. looking at fairy tales, which I'm always reading fairy tales, but particularly the European ones, fairies were always in green or in red, and they had, depending on where you live, which area you lived in, they had a particular penchant for people with particular um, hair colour or eye colour. So you could kind of use it in a positive way to put across what was going to happen to a character or where they might have come from without actually blatantly making it obvious this is the fairy queen. You just have a woman turn up in a green dress and your audience from that would know because of their... um, from previous stories and the society and beliefs in general, that this was clearly a fairy. And it was almost a sense of dramatic irony that you could employ. Um, so I think there is something to be said for for that kind of thing. Or you could go the George R. R. Martin route and questionable eugenics of everyone in this family line is blonde. And, <laughs> and so on. But isn't that because they're all incestuous anyway? <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that. <laughs> I wanted to bring up one of my favourite, and I say that ironically, um, of cliches of, especially when it comes to women, of comparing them to animals. And I mean things like, oh, she purred, she, you know, she <laughs> slinks into a room, you know, it's, it's women it, it's always tended to be used in a sexual way although i was talking to a friend yesterday about this and he was saying well men men get the other side it's they're linked to animals when it's their sort of the anger the toxic mas- masculinity things you know the men growl while the women purr this is one of my most hated things please m- women don't purr please stop <laughs> i don't even necessarily know what tone of voice they're trying to evoke with that <laughs> Because nothing I, I can do with my voice sounds anything like my cat when it's purring. Well, obviously, it's very literally dehumanizing, right? And it's putting women in this position of not even being people, kind of literally not being people when they're the object of male desire. Mm. I mean, even things like, um, you know... Uh, Comparing women's necks to swans and, you know, like a Russian bedded swan and things, which is so beautiful. I mean, this is like I'm quoting from Christina Rossetti here. But I mean, um, even looking back to that, you begin to, you know, realize that, you know, well, it's image, but you're still 
comparing them to a bird and there's a certain as we were saying you know a certain aspect of dehumanization there where you know it's it's I don't know is it is it a lack of imagination or is it genuinely a genuine appreciation of nature well to me it really evokes the relationship people or men specifically have with these animals where a lot of these animals are hunted or a lot of these animals are owned and Mm. I think that's sort of evoking a dynamic here that's not necessarily entirely unintentional. That's really interesting that often, you're right, that often the animals that we're compared to are prey or um, domesticated. It's very interesting. (laughs) Or even if there's a predator, um, it'll be something that men might might hunt. hunt. Yeah, or might, might have as a trophy. I've been reading a a book in preparation for an upcoming interview, actually, um, about 19th century women's ghost literature. And one of the things that um, was noted by the author of this was that um, when you have sort of a a more sexual side of a woman, they do tend to be put across as sort of animalistic or perhaps heathenistic or demonic or something like that. Not necessarily because it's about predator and prey, but because it's about women who express any kind of sexuality are mm. unnatural um and it's it's basically a way of saying you know this this isn't a proper woman a proper woman would be demure and kind and you know lower her eyelashes this one is like a, a swan or, or like a cat or something like that it's it's they're not human and by right. emphasizing this they're kind of saying well the feelings that she's having and the sensuality she's exuding are also not human uh, whereas in a not feminine human i suppose mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's the animal attraction, and that's why, you know, we have to keep these women very closely under control and have them chaperoned and not um, not let, leave them alone with a man because, you know, their animal attraction might just overcome them. That's a very 19th century attitude towards women's sexuality. It's like Megan was saying earlier, that has it become a bit internalized and we just kind of repeat this because we've read it so often in so many texts. You know, you you always go back to the classics and everyone's grown up on these things. Is this just the way that we describe it without actually really understanding why we do that? Because it just sounds funky, you know, and people have done it and that's just the way it is these days. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think um, we just go to these default descriptions, especially for things like sexuality i mean the defaults are interesting because then you have something you know we'll try and not get too derailed but when you look at race there is that assumption that everyone is white unless you say otherwise yeah and that's it's a terrible thing but it's it's very difficult to to get out of just um you know speaking as a a white person who writes you Mm. do have a tendency to do that and we'd need to try and get away from that default and that default assumption, you know, and it, and it's the same with you, you approach everything. It's the default is you assume that they are white, straight, right. That, you know, gender assigned at birth, that kind of thing. Like there's a, a lot of assumptions that always go into these things and you only tend to actually call out the other you know when it is other other than 
just going, well, they could be anything and you could be anything and, and, and so on. And it, it's a very right. difficult line to walk, I think. Yeah, so that's one of the difficulties with uh, going with minimal description is even if you never intended it that way, your audience uh, is going to probably go with the most um, hegemonic vision of the character possible. And so I really think it's important to have robust descriptions, um, even ones that mention things that um, are maybe what the audience would have assumed anyway. But if you mention them specifically, that singles them out as something that could have been different. Mm. That's not necessarily the default. Yes. And then if you call out something that wouldn't be the default later on, it's Yeah, that less... doesn't immediately stand out as yes. the one character whose skin color gets mentioned. Mm. It's interesting, actually, because I remember a, a little while, maybe a couple of years back, and they had this whole a whole similar um, as sort of ongoing idea as well as you know writing how male writers write female characters it's how all writers describe black characters you know oh, talking yes. about the the chocolate skin and someone yeah. turned around and went well okay let's try and describe white characters in the same way that everyone describes um characters with different skin color and the results were just ridiculous. It's like, well, you'd never describe a white person like that. So why do people persist in trying to describe um, characters of colour in this particular way? And again, I think that would be a whole extra episode for us to discuss. But it is interesting that it seems, as you were saying, the defaults are very much white, probably male. Uh, I mean, I know we talked in an earlier episode about Lucy and her guards, and she one of them was female because she just automatically written both as male. I went, hang on a minute, no one should be female. And you just assume white, male, cis, gender assigned, all this kind of thing. And the only way to break free from that and to add in an extra character is to challenge that default and put in a description. But then you're almost shooting yourself in the foot because you're then having to pick out and describe the one person that's different and make them sound like they're different rather than just you know, part of the, the general scheme. It, it's just, I mean, there's, I still think it should be done. We should have more minority characters, more f stronger female characters, but it is almost a, a no-win situation. Uh, and I think you have to be very, very careful when trying to describe characters accurately, um, but at the same time, not falling into cliches or tropes or in any way, you know, being ridiculous about it. Oh yeah, the black people described as food was definitely uh, high on my list of other really cliche things that get done with descriptions. And the worst part is I think white authors think they're being complimentary when they do that, you know, when they describe her caramel colored skin or something, they're thinking, caramel, people like caramel, right? It's nice. You know, they're not thinking that food is another object, it's another thing that's yes. not a person. Mm. It's a really interesting what Charlotte was saying about that whole, um, you know, you, you're actually wanting to, unless you're setting out to create a, a extremely patriarchal, um, Eurocentric, uh, medievalist society, then, you know, you want to be creating a world that is as diverse as the one that we live in. And you want to be, you know, trying to create this kind of like unspoken tapestry of of different races and different creeds and different genders and different identities. And yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. How do you do that? Um, you know, over egging it, you see, like, you know, in picking out many, many individuals and, and trying to describe them in, in a way that w looks 
creating a diverse society. So it is, it is. I think it is a difficult one. Um, it is tough to to try and, you know, create to to show a kind of well to create a kind of accurate backdrop of diversity in in your writing through description. Especially when it comes to sort of secondary worlds. So when we're talking speculative fiction, when you have, you know, as I think we've mentioned before, things like, um, you know, the David Eddings books, which I love, by the way, but, you know, you get the kind of... The, the, the characters. Mergos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and the Murgos, they have dark skin. And it's just like in, in Tolkien as well, you know, the orcs are dark skinned. And you have, again, what... what Diana Wynne Jones was talking about it's that coding and it's a very negative coding but people use it as shorthand and it's it's terrible and to get away from that yeah it's going to take more work and you're going to have to put more effort into it but it's worth it and you should be doing it in particular it's it's difficult when you're describing like a crowd for instance and how you can get the audience to envision a diverse crowd and not a crowd that's all white people mm-hmm but I think there is a lot of value in being specific with your descriptions with characters who are white and male, you know, um, mentioning that they're white and that opening the door to the person who's narrating being familiar with people of different races and not not automatically assuming that everyone's skin will be this color. So that just gives you a view that the world must be a little bit more diverse definitely and not just all the baddies are all one color or or, or one gender or one whatever and not just the baddies it's also tends to be a failure of imagination just to put like you know all the black people in one country oh yes even if they're not the villain country Um. (laughs) the villain country (laughs) (laughs) I like that. <laughs> yes, and sadly, it does happen. <laughs> it does. There are villain countries <laughs> where they're grown. <laughs> well, like Tolkien's South Roms, right? Like they never get to do good guy stuff, do they? They're just Sauron's allies, and they're black. Oh God, yes, of course. I yeah, I always feel so. I always think I want to know what's in it for them. You know, like they never actually go into. He never goes into their motivations really for kind of aiding. So I remember they're like, "Whoa, he's a really good military leader." But you never know that. You just, you know, maybe Gondor has some horrible colonialist history with the yeah. Sauron. Oh, good that. idea. <laughs> Makes Aragon look all that more suspect now. <laughs> Yeah, well, he just comes back after 2,000 years and announces he's king. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're just going to let that fly. I'm, I'm sure it, I could draw some uh, some current political uh, an analogy here with some of our politicians and uh, their ideas. But, yeah, it does. Oh, you spoiled it for me now. I'm never going to be able to read it again the same. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, in the last five years, so many people have said such negative things about Tolkien. I kind of don't want to pick up the books anymore because then I'll see them all, whereas previously I didn't. And I know that it's a good thing that you should be aware of this kind of stuff, but at the same time, you kind of go, oh, no. I want to know whether or not, um, after we've had this, just female authors describing themselves as male authors would do, I want to know if we can turn it around and have a thread that basically has any author of any kind describing men in the same way that they describe women. Because I reckon there's got to be some value um, in that to try and imagine how you would describe a man in the same way that you would describe a woman. I imagine you get some very good ideas in relation to that. Ideally in first person. 
Oh, that would be even better. Yeah, that would be great. And really, he's uh, he's swaggering down the street, thinking about how big his dick is. Yes, you know, <laughs> thinking about how his dick looks in his pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I so had to glad stuff I... it in there this morning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the added socks are really working for me today. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody will know. <laughs> How he stares in the mirror and, you know, ripples his muscles and tosses his hair back and oh, does yeah. a, che- a cheeky little pout just to make sure that his lips are exactly the right kissability before he walks out the door. Oh, wow, chicka wow. <laughs> I think you have a strong male character here. I think we do. Sorry, I was going to say, you never get that whole bit about skin-tight jeans without a credit card in it, because I'm pretty sure all the guys I know carry wallets in their back pockets. I'm sure, yeah. but maybe there's some, some value in the bulge at the back and the front to attract the ladies. Maybe a big bulge at the back with a big wallet stuffed full of 20s. <laughs> Sorry, I, there's, there's a whole novel in there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> That's the only thing we care about, right? We don't care about what's on the front. <laughs> just those 20s but it was supposed to be in the spirit of describing women in the same way but uh but yes uh we're we're clearly not going to stoop to that level are we we're we're rising above it (laughs) disappointingly yes that is correct (laughs) the interesting thing though is um that the female gaze is not strictly an inversion of the male gaze right yes so even when we're looking at men, you know, even if you're checking out hot guys, you're not looking at them strictly the same way a man would check out hot women. Um, yeah, I, my eyes don't go to his crotch as a general well, rule. Yeah, That's the thing. It's so easy for guys. If you're looking at a woman, you've just got to dip your eyes a little bit to take in her breasts. But if you're a girl then you basically like megan says got to stare at their crotch which is slightly more obvious than just staring at. i mean you can usually tell when guys are staring at your breast but still it's <laughs> it's only a little movement whereas if you stare blatantly at their crotch while they're talking it they they tend to pick up on that kind of thing i feel like now i just want to do that with every new man <laughs> yeah, i meet yeah, yeah. <laughs> i want to see if it makes them uncomfortable <laughs> you know the thing is i i think most men probably wouldn't notice because I think they're just not paying, or at least uh, the the kinds of men who stare at your boobs are not thinking about what you're doing. They're not trying to mm. think in your mind, what are you looking at? What are you thinking of him? They're just checking you out. And I suppose if they're the sort of guys that think girls wear low-cut tops so that they can be checked out, then they'll be perfectly happy to be checked out themselves. Well, it would only be fair. All right, so I think what we have learned is that when you're writing a well, a, a well-written description of a woman, whether it's from her perspective or not, uh, you know, the first thing that you know enters the room is not her breasts. Uh, don't just focus on <laughs> the bouncing of them or the the curves of her bosom and bum. There are many other things that we can write about when describing a person that are far more interesting and less offensive. Gwen, before mm-hmm. we uh, before we disappear, why don't you tell us a little bit about Among the Red Stars and why our listeners should be reading it. Among the Red Stars is the story of the Night Witches, who were an all-female bomber unit in the Soviet Union during World War II. And... Um, 
a lot of people still don't know that women actually fought in combat in World War II, but they did. And in the Soviet Union, they filled all these different roles. They were snipers, they were tank drivers, they were all kinds of things, including pilots. And I was just really fascinated by this unit and these incredibly brave, uh, interesting women who were in it who got to fight the Nazis on the Eastern Front here. So I uh, wrote the story of a girl who's, you know, always aspired to be a pilot in the Soviet Air Force and gets her big chance when the war breaks out. And then, of course, when she goes to war, things don't end up being the way she imagined they would be. We know here that women have always fought. And thank you, Cameron Hurley, for that essay. Oh, yeah, that essay was brilliant and very, very true. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for joining us tonight. It's been really great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use.